save our wildlife, save the environment, save our world. It all starts with a little knowledge. Welcome to Our Wild World with L.A. Weiss. There is so much that's being done and can be done with help from specialists and marginalized community groups to you. We'll discuss the future of Africa, the wildlife, and the people, and show you how it affects the entire planet. Now, here is Ellie Weiss from the Wild Eyes Foundation. Good morning. This is Ellie Weiss, and welcome to Our Wild World. Our conversation today once again brings us to cougars and how the research into their ecology, biology, and population always brings us to a much wider scope of the functions and health of their ecosystems and our overall landscapes. From the north to the south, east to west, sea to shining sea, mountain lions tell a story of the North and South American continents. My guest today is Jim Williams, who spent his life finding the wilds and studying the wildlife that lives out there and their deeply interconnected relationships. Jim is an award-winning, professionally certified wildlife biologist and has been working for Montana Fish and Wildlife and Parks for over 27 years. He studied mountain lion ecology for his master's degree on Montana's Rocky Mountain Front and has been working on mountain lion and other wildlife conservation issues in various roles ever since. Jim is also the author of the award-winning book, Path of the Puma, a sweeping tale of not only his life, but his decades-long journey following the puma from the wilds of Glacier National Park up in uh, Montana, down through the Rocky Mountains to south of our borders into Patagonia. It's a pleasure to be speaking with you today, Jim. Thank you, Ellie. It's great to be here. Thank you. So we've got a lot to talk about today. Um, First, why don't we start with a little bit about you. Your book, Path of the Puma, gets into that, but um, and I strongly suggest our listeners read it. It is a fabulous book and um, a great way to just Go with Jim out into the wild. So tell us how you got here. Well, it's kind of a long story, but kind of fun. If it wasn't for surfing, I wouldn't have found the cats. And uh, what I mean by that, growing up in in Pacific Beach, San Diego, which is right on the coast, just south of La Jolla, um, I was uh, used to longboard as a as a child and and enjoyed surfing. And at some point, I put a mask on and looked underneath the water and saw that incredible world of marine life and this diverse array of species. And uh, after that, I became a marine biologist. That was my undergraduate degree, was uh, marine biology at San Diego State and Florida State. And I actually worked uh, for SeaWorld and Ocean World, some oceanariums and in more more interpretation and, and entertainment to get people inspired about or to care about these animals. But that wasn't enough. I wanted to work in the wild. So I went to graduate school in 1988. I came to Montana just after the big Yellowstone fires. I showed up about 30 years ago to work on my first mountain lion research project out of Montana State, uh, which is a university based in Bozeman. And 30 years later, here I am. So you're still in Montana. You're up in Whitefish, right? Correct, uh, which is just in a beautiful valley, just on the western slopes of Glacier National Park just south of British Columbia. Wow. Well, you talk about Glacier National Park and its tremendous and diverse landscapes. And that's sort of, as you just said, where you began, uh, well, Yellowstone and then up into Glacier with the mountain lions. So Glacier is 
unique in the sense that it's, um, I forget exactly what it's called, but there's kind of like two ecosystems divided by the big gap. Yes, you have the greater Bob Marshall Wilderness, which is actually three wilderness areas to the south. And then you to the north, you have the Highway 2 kind of cuts between, kind of a low pass between the mountain ranges. And then north, you have Glacier Park and Waterton National Park in Alberta. And collectively, the entire area and the associated mountains is referred to as the crown of the continent. Oh, that's got to be beautiful. I was up there when I was much, much younger. I don't recall it um, very well, but I sure need to get there again. So how did you go about following the path of the puma? And you know, this brings, yeah. me, this brings me to a question. One second. Okay. The puma okay. is one of the only animals I know of that has so many names. Puma concolor is its, is its species name, Latin name. It's also called catamount, cougar, panther, and mountain lion. So how does it end up with so many names that create such a mystery around it? Yes, and, and, and you're correct. If you think about it, as, as human societies, we, you know, large carnivores evoke uh, a variety of emotions. And, you know, typically with respect, fear, awe, and we, we relate to them historically in native cultures, current cultures, First Nations, you know, as a respect for a carnivore as a hunter, uh, similar to what humans, you know, evolved doing as a hunter gatherers. So, so there are lots of different names, and pumas hold a special place in many native cultures in North America and South America, and that holds true today in today's society. Um, so, yeah, so they're all, they're all pretty much the same animal. There's, there's six subspecies now based on DNA research or genetic work, and we have one up here in North America. There's the Patagonia subspecies and four in between in Central and Northern South America. But, but yes, there's all sorts of names and all sorts of folklore and stories that go with with this incredible animal. Well, that brings me to a little question. Um, having grown up in California, surfing, and um, the recent petition in California to have the uh, cougar listed as under the California Endangered Species Act because of um, the, I think there's six or ten subpopulations that are being boxed off and we're going to get into this some of because of lack of connectivity and corridors that they can't um, connect with each other. So their genetic diversity is is kind of a biological endgame. Yes. So so where I'm at, I live in big, large, wild, connected landscapes in the northern Rockies. You know, southern British Columbia, southern Alberta. Well, actually, northern British Columbia and Alberta as well are big, wild, connected landscapes. And growing up in Southern California, um, that those landscapes now have a human footprint that is so large that fragmentation is a real issue, not only for, for mountain lions, but for other species as well. And so you're looking at fragmented remnant habitats of wild nature, and that's an issue. And, you know, it, it seems like during a time when most large carnivores are being um, impacted by these fractured landscapes in your book Path of the Puma you're telling us that actually the cougar is seeing an expansion of its territory and that it's doing very well overall. yes and so there's a 
Yes, there's a lot of uh, rumors and folklore around the status of, of, of cougars, mountain lions, pumas, if you will. And Southern California is a little bit of an exception to the rule. Throughout the, the planet, most wild felids, most wild big cats are stable or declining, uh, stable at best or declining. Mountain lions are the only big cat that is actually reclaiming lost habitats from Patagonia all the way up to North America. Now, California is a little chunk of urbanization, Southern California, from probably, you know, just south of San Luis Obispo, Santa Barbara, south. That is, that's a unique uh, situation that's going on everywhere else. Um, the landscapes are such that, and the, the prey base for pumas is such that, uh, you know, these animals are, are actually reclaiming areas they haven't been in for years and years and years since we eliminated them. So that brings me to another point. You know, we, mankind, back to colonial days and our wildlife management systems of extirpating all the carnivores, wolves, bears, mountain lions, and now it's coyotes and uh, groundhogs and prairie dogs. So we go about extirpating anything that sort of gets in our way of our cattle, our livestock, and our agriculture. So cougars are doing okay in California. They're kind of boxed in, and we've talked about that previously on this program. And what you're telling us in Path of the Puma is, and what we've just said, they're doing well, except there's kind of a bottleneck when we go eastward at the Dakotas with all this human footprint and fracturing. So when we talk about rewilding and the eastern cougar, they're kind of stopped there. And it seems to me that we're seeing more and more mountain lions, usually young males. It seems that we're getting more um, sightings and uh, conflicts or at least encounters with young male cougars. So is this an interpretation I get from it? Is they're really trying to disperse? But what's in the way? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so that's a that's a that's a. A complex question you just asked. It's got two parts. I'll take the historical part first, and then I'll get to dispersal. Historically, different than bears and wolves, where uh, in, uh, to some degree, where where hunting and trapping and and hunters and trappers were part of the elimination program as we settled the West, as as uh, primarily white colonists moved westward uh, into traditional native territories. It was a it was a colonist. Uh, type of uh, dominion over over nature, right? And with mountain lions, the same thing occurred because they eat sheep, they eat cattle, right? So poison lace baits on public lands in the West were a big issue. Um, but interestingly, the twist, and it's an odd twist, there's a, the hunters that hunted mountain lions had to train trailing hounds. And that culture um, grew throughout the West out of the bounty days. They were bountied carnivores, bountied predators until the 60s. It was the actual people that hunted them that inherited their dogs from grandparents or adults or got them from friends that actually figured out it was kind of neat to chase these cats and take photos of them beyond hunting in the 60s and that they had value on the landscape totally outside of ecological value in the natural system. These are rural conservative uh, communities. So all of a sudden, they fought to eliminate bounties with the university researchers and scientists and people that like cats, and they did it because they carried clout in these rural communities. The same group of 
these hound handlers, I'll call them hound handlers because there's women and men. Traditionally, traditionally you'll see houndmen as a term, but there's a lot of women in these rural communities that have trailing hounds too. It's a very physical thing. And they take photos of these cats all winter. They went to the mat in the early 70s and forced the states, these are the, the, the people that train the hounds, they're conservative rural residents, they forced the state legislators to make mountain lions into game animals. And that's really important because the minute they have protection in any given state in the West as a game animal, game wardens can then enforce laws to bust poachers and protect them. And then later on in the 80s, they forced the different wildlife agencies were over hunting cats. They forced them to go to quotas and to use some of the best science. Uh, Morris Hornacker's pioneering work in Idaho and a whole host of researchers, Kenny Logan and now Mark Elbrock and a lot of, lot of good scientists since then. These hound handlers force and hold their state agencies accountable for that. And it's variable across the West. So it's this odd history to get to where we're at now of these hound handlers in the West that carry that political swagger, that, that influence that can enforce conservative states to change their laws to protect cats. So it's a really a little different than bears and wolves. It's just a little different. And then because of that and white-tailed deer and mule deer and elk recovery that hunters wanted for meat, right? Um, we, we built the grocery stores. So the cats did recover and they peaked in the mid nineties. And that's when we had a lot of the human conflicts. But as they recovered these landscapes, they started moving east, just like you said, Ellie. And they, they get to these island ranges like the Black Hills or the Bighorns in Wyoming. And they follow these riparian river corridors eastward. And it's typically, just as you pointed out, males that disperse first and the furthest. But as they move east, they can only exist where their food is, uh, is there in the form of white-tailed deer primarily in the Midwest and as where we will tolerate them because you don't have the big blocks of, of wild nature in the Midwest like we do here. So, so that's exactly, you're right, that's what's going on. These males are pushing first. Typically the females go next. But it's up to us whether we're going to tolerate them as a society because they're a large carnivore. And this brings us to some more of your work. Um, and let's talk about some of the differences between the ecosystems here from north to south and along the Rockies. And you can fill us in on some of the different studies you've been involved in and where the cats are moving. And then the difference between what is happening in South America and Patagonia. And we definitely, I definitely want to get into the people and carnivores um, issue and what you just said, we have to tolerate them. So this is part of the, the paradigm shift we're at today. So tell us yeah. a little bit about the various ecosystems, the population densities, and then lead us into Patagonia. Okay. That, yeah, sure. It, it's, a great, it's, a, it's a great adventure and a great ride. It, it's because Patagonia is very similar, wild wild majestic Patagonia is very similar to the wild crown of the continent and frankly to some areas in the wild Sierras in California and, and Colorado, um, you know, where there are still wildlands. So up here, my, my first project, actually I trained on a project uh, led by Kerry Murphy in Yellowstone and Morris Hornacker learned how to use trailing hounds, but I was kind of thrown into the wild on what's called the Rocky Mountain Front, which is the east side of the Bob Marshall Wilderness where the prairie meets the Rockies in an abrupt 2,000 foot 
rise of rock that creates the Bob Marshall Wilderness from there west. And so I actually lived with uh, 25 to 30 cats for several years in graduate school. And primarily back then, what were they eating and what kind of habitats were they using? This was old school technology. And then we had another study in the gates of the mountains, which is between the greater Yellowstone and the northern continental divide area in Montana. It's what we call a linkage area or connectivity area. And there's some fun stories in the book. I almost bought the farm and had to burn a Forest Service picnic table to stay. All of us did to stay warm and not freeze to death. But um, So I worked there. And then and then particularly the last 15 years, a lot of conservation work that myself and my teams do and my colleagues in South America and up here is working with people, right, wrong, or indifferent. It's up to us where we'll tolerate grizzly bears, wolves, and lions and other, you know, large carnivores. And so Montana, interestingly, has a density of pumas, two to four resident adults per 100 square kilometers for the most part, very similar to Patagonia. A cat's a cat's a cat from down there to up here. And, of course, there's, there's uh, you know, variability slightly, but cats are pretty stereotypical in their behavior. Um, but uh, the densities are pretty similar. The landscapes are very similar in Patagonia and Chile and Argentina versus, versus here. But the, uh, the plant species and the other wildlife species are off the charts different. It's just a, a totally different, in my mind, a magical landscape down there because I'm familiar with what's up here, right? And, uh, but, but uh, yeah, no, it's, there's lots of fun stories about the interactions of what these cats eat up here versus down there. And then we share some same issues with livestock and tolerance from ranchers and farmers and even local communities, too. Well, we're going to get into that, but right now we're going to step away to, for a short break. So, listeners, stay tuned because we've got lots of stories coming up, and be sure to pick up Path of the Puma because it is a fabulous read. So we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable. Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. And welcome back. You're listening to Our Wild World. I'm Ellie Weiss, and my guest today is Jim Williams, a cougar biologist, ecologist, and fabulous storyteller. And pick up his book, Path of the Puma, award-winning, not an anthology, um, collection of tales. So we're going to hear some of those stories. But at the end of the first section, Jim, you were talking about the differences of and the similarities of cougar habitat up here versus what's happening down in Patagonia and the differences of what they eat. You said it was off the charts different down there. So why don't we start with understanding here. We know it's white-tailed deer, that uh, the cougars follow the deer. The deer are coming into our habitats, human places, and that, of course, is bringing in some of the younger cougars. Um, And maybe we can talk a little bit about um, the hunting of cougars and leaving of orphans or immature young cats that seem to be getting into trouble. Why don't we start there? Yes. Okay, so it's uh, important to remember that throughout the West, which is the stronghold of the mountain lion, um, mostly a mule deer, elk, and then white-tailed deer in some states. It's deer and elk make up the prey base. When you get down to Patagonia, and Patagonia is a region, a southern part of Chile, the southern part of Argentina. It's referred to as a southern cone, and it's kind of a almost folklorish status. You know, the name Patagonia evokes a lot of wild, big mountains, you know, the Patagonia clothing label. And that's who published my book, by the way. All and right. it's a big, wild place. It's a big, wild place. And and so in Patagonia, it's all cats and camels when it comes to native food. So there's, Ca- there's, camels? there's, there's two wild camels in Argentina and Chile, and there's a vicuña, and there's a huanaco. And if you think about up here, and these are domesticated versions or hybrids, we have llamas and alpacas, right? So a wild version of an alpaca or similar is a vicuña. It's a little, small, high-octane, super-fast camel it's like a uh, like a pronghorn antelope. They remind me of a little bit here in, in in the West. They also have, if you think about a llama, they're a little more furry. They got the great big long neck. They they are the native version of that. The wild version in Patagonia is called a guanaco with a G. It's pronounced with a W or guanaco. Some people say up here, and so guanacos and vicuñas throughout Argentina and Chile represent the native food, the primary native food. Since Argentina and Chile were colonized by Europeans, primarily domestic sheep were introduced and European hares. 
And now their entire populations or subunits of pumas down there, the Patagonia puma, that live entirely on non-native species. So as natural as it looks with the big wild mountains and glaciers, it's pretty, pretty unraveled in many places, uh, you know, when it comes to native foods versus non-native foods. So you have pumas down there that live on ranches that eat domestic sheep entirely or European hares. But the biologists are working very hard to convert that system to rewild it back into a puma, wanako system. And, and uh, there's, a, there's also another native fox. Um, there's a couple, a small gray one. And then one called a copeo that's kind of a little larger than a coyote, kind of a reddish brown and blonde, just beautiful wild canid. They're native as well. But the, the cultures they're up against there are hundreds of years of sheep farmers that kill anything that threatens sheep or anything that eats the grass that sheep eat. So whether it be a wanako that competes for sheep for grass or a puma that could potentially, or they do, kill domestic sheep, the gauchos. They're cowboys down there. It's a, it's a very tough, independent uh, group, demographic of people. Uh, they have generations are trained to kill these cats and kill wanakos. So, so you're, you have systems that have been unraveled that my colleagues down there are working on, on, on uh, seaming up and rewilding back to a native system, whether outside of parks and inside of parks. So this brings us into people tolerating the large carnivores, which is uh, a global issue and challenge from the United States all the way over to Africa and the African lion, Panthera leo. So, um, and you were just talking about the gauchos and the, the Patagonian cowboys. And um, what what is it you do when you're working down there or even here with the, the conservation projects and initiatives that you are involved in and start up? How do you where the rubber meets the road, you know, talking about cougars and pumas um, living and being in the wild is all well and good. But when it comes down to that particular community, um, of which there are many, how do you literally go about changing the mindset to live and coexist with the big cat, with the cats? Yes, that's a great question, Ellie. This is where conservation often gets messy where, you know, idealistic graduate students coming out of graduate school don't realize they're going to be doing this kind of work with people and not just following wild animals around in wild places. Um, Conservation gets messy at a local level because, just as you mentioned, if local communities do not tolerate large carnivores, they won't exist, period. It's up to us. In order for conservation, hard-won conservation victories uh, to be durable, and durable is the key word, to last after you walk away, they have to be socially acceptable at a local level. And so in Argentina, for instance, there's a chapter called Ranching for Wildlife. And my friend, Martin Monteverde, he's uh, a good friend, been to Montana several times, but he is rewilding down there using uh, local tolerance. He is working with these gauchos and these enclosures that Um, ranchers have their lambs every year that have these rickety fences kind of reminiscent of bomas to protecting cattle from the Maasai Maasai in Africa for African lions. They do the same thing for pumas, but they're these rickety sticks and stones. And so what he's doing is teaching them how to build fences with visual screens because cats see the world with their eyes. They're very visual hunters, right? And he's also looking at electricity um, with solar power batteries because electricity works on great big male grizzly bears up here to cats down there. Electricity is an incredible tool for living with wildlife to protect things. And he's working with 
And he's rancher by rancher. And the neat thing is, if you make, as Martin convinces one ranch to do better stewardship and tolerate pumas or Andean condors on their property or wanacos, he can create an ecosystem level change because these ranches are so big. They're the size of our national parks or larger in the United States. So working with one rancher can pay huge dividends at an ecosystem level. It's long, slow, messy work. It involves up here we drink coffee and help ranchers fix fence, try and meet them at their level. What are their concerns? Down there they drink mate. It's like a tea and it's a heated up tea in a gourd. It's kind of bitter. It's kind of an acquired taste, but it's a lot of fun. They drink a lot of mate with a lot of gauchos and the ranchers to build that trust and then convince them to try something a little different. And they, by gosh, what they are doing is working. And it's a long, slow process, but it's what I call local conservation. And, you know, up here with grizzly bears and wolves and lions, it's all about that as well. Even, even deer and elk, uh, tolerating those on ranches. They're, they have the exact same issue down there, and it's working in that local community. So you mentioned um, something interesting to me. Uh, before you had said old-school technology, tracking, and, you know, um, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed grad students wanting to come out and get their hands on wildlife and track it versus conservation is really working with people. And a lot of grad students aren't prepared for that. But those of us like you and I and so many others that have been doing this for decades, we know that without people, we're not going to change any conservation conservation methodologies, but you mentioned the new technologies and visual screens that cats hunt and see, they use their eyes. So that is something I haven't heard of. What is a visual screen? So um, there's a actual, um, there's different types of plastic, mylar, and, and some synthetic netting that essentially for the bottom six feet up, because they're not that tall, even the large African cats the bottom six feet that's going to, it's going to shelter and obscure some of the movements. You know, cats are going to key in on movements and, uh, and particularly, you know, at nighttime, but it, it prevents a little bit of a visual barrier, which is an attractant with a whole goal. When you, when you try and protect calves or lambs in the case of sheep or most livestock, particularly young livestock is to minimize the attractant issue and so movement is part of the issue seeing them the other for bears of course is scent and that's a whole nother world because bears see the world through their noses cats are are, are almost 90 percent visual um and the other thing is electric fence you know you can put a little wire up top where if a cat or or a bear up here makes the leap or touches the fence with uh, their nose they're going to get a shock and it doesn't hurt the animal but they learn really quickly they stay away uh, most large mammals do not like getting shocked and uh, then there are the height of the fence. Uh, now, lions or pumas down there are incredible leapers. Has to be a pretty high fence. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, so, and and it's you know there are other deterrents with noise with cats, where sensors can detect, uh, like a critter getter. That's a trade name, but the and a move it detects movement and a siren goes off. There's a whole bunch of variations of those, but in combination, my colleagues in Patagonia and Chile and Argentina, and using guard, guard dogs as well. That's a whole other program. All of these together, they're making strides. They are making strides with the community accepting some pumas on the landscape because prior to that, they kill them all, and they still do on many ranches. So it's about changing a culture, and that, that's a messy. takes a long time. The victories, the conservation victories aren't apparent right away, but over the last 15 years, you know, they're seeing some real results, and, and that's outside of a national park, creating a new park. 
Now, clearly a park is, is a gold standard, but this is in communities and those important connectivity areas between parks on, on real working landscapes. So when we, between, you know, what's happening in Patagonia and what's happening up here in our western states and getting lions and people to coexist, males require like 100 to 200 square miles and then they want to disperse. So when you've got kittens or kits or cubs, then the males need to disperse. The females can sort of stick around and share. So in Patagonia, you're saying they're willing on these huge landscapes that are national park size being one ranch which we don't have as much of up here um and down in patagonia i'm presuming there aren't uh the roads issues that break and fracture the landscapes so if when they're willing to accept a lion does that allow for other lions to move through as you start creating Connectivity from ranch to ranch to ranch, ranch, connecting the dots like pearls on a string. Yes, and and so keep in mind, most of the roads down there are, are gravel. They're not like Colorado or California, where you have you know eight lanes going both ways or fifteen. These are even even most of Chile and Argentina. They're they're rural gravel roads that are very. Uh, easy to cross and very low traffic volumes at night. So roads aren't the issue. The issue is the local gauchos that take care of the livestock, if they're going to go out and preemptively kill all the cats, or they're going to leave a few, or they're going to tolerate some wanako as native food, so the cats will take the wanako instead of the livestock. Those are some of the experiments that the biologists that you'll read about in the book they are okay. doing right now down there. It's, it's, it's really innovative. They're, they, they actually, we can learn from some of their successes, too, to implement up here in our rural livestock areas. Well, t- tell us a little about that. I mean, what can we transfer from there to here in terms of, you know, living with not only the native spe- prey species, but letting the big cats? What, what did you find is transferable? I, I think the, the actually attitudes and patience. So we tend to want immediate gratification in the United States. We're a very wealthy country. We're, we're very fortunate that we have funds to do this kind of conservation work. I mean, conservation is a luxury, right? If people want food, water, shelter, some basic needs, you know, right. uh, basic psychology before they can care about, you know, wild nature and wild land. So um, down there, it's not necessarily guaranteed. And so they're very patient. And here we want immediate change. And, and sometimes these changes take 10 years to be realized. And, and they're seeing it down there. And it's kind of a, kind of a, a wake-up call for North American biologists to, you know, give this time. You've got to build these relationships with these landowners to work on these cultural changes, to tolerate, make people feel safe. Safety is a whole other issue with bears and cats, right? Right. Um, because people potentially and do get hurt now and again. Although I'll, I'll always preface that or qualify it with, Driving in Colorado, going over, you know, the passes from Denver to Aspen are far more dangerous than ever hiking in the woods because our, our brains are just, you know, we have a monkey brain that's hardwired to be afraid of sharks and bears and things with teeth. That's just how we're wired and it's sensational when really every day we drive, we're at more risk, right? Right. It's just, it makes the news and we're kind of hardwired that way. But, but uh, they do now and again pose a risk. So in rural communities, that's an issue with parents and their kids or families and their pets. And so those types of information-sharing vehicles, whether it's pamphlets, whether it's social media, we hire what's called conflict specialists. And they, their job, 100% in Montana, is to work with private properties, communities, ranches, 
on bear proofing, uh, not feeding deer, you know, to spread disease or bring lions in, providing information on what cats really eat and how they eat it so people aren't unnecessarily afraid, how to recreate in a wildland, what to do if you see a bear or a lion, because there are different human behaviors to, you know, to perform. And so those types of things, north and south, have been exchanged um, pretty much nonstop and it's it's pretty heartwarming to see and again we got a long way to go we're it's just starting down there really the last 15 20 years and here we have a long way to go as well and places like colorado and california and even the resort areas in montana there's a churn of about every three years you get new people moving in and you have to start over (laughs) right and that that's a big problem and the buying up of the west by wealthy um dot com or hedge funders or whatever wherever they got their wealth and buying huge tracts of land and they don't necessarily live there but kind of create an enclave um, do you do a lot of work with them to understand and be amenable to having lions on their property yeah those types of landowners the the, the more wealthy uh, individuals to buy land to have open space aren't necessarily the problem per se when it comes to uh, tolerating large carnivores because they typically do. They're from usually an urban environment and they, you know, they, they see wildlife on TV versus right. have livestock lost. They're easy, but it's the type of person that buys those large ranches and breaks it up into subdivisions and puts a neighborhood in. Homes are a permanent footprint on the landscape that doesn't disappear. And uh, not without millions of dollars of work to rewild it. So the subdivisions, the developers are more of an issue than the dot-com buyers, frankly. Right. But subdivisions, where you, Ellie, you hit, on, hit the nail on the head. The permanent conversion of wildlands to homes is the number one issue in the West for winter ranges, for ungulates that all the large carnivores eat. If you don't have the deer and elk, you're not going to have the carnivores, period. And as these neighborhoods are gobbled up or these wildlands are gobbled up and people want to live on their postcard on that urban wildland interface that will take a grocery store down for large carnivores and you're going to see population impacts forever probably like That's what's happening in california colorado even montana wyoming people you know people you know they work their life to live in a postcard out west you can't blame them but uh, it's all about planning and zoning and no rural conservative government wants to do that Wow, this is fascinating. So we have to once again step away for a little break, but stick with us because we have a lot more to talk about and we'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up. Our forests don't grow. Our communities go hungry. Our biodiversity crumbles. Wildlife drives our planet's ecosystems. The wild effect. It's in our hands. Ellie founded Wild Eyes Foundation because she loves Africa and to remind us that there are more harmonious and less destructive ways to live on our planet. She does this so we may be able to look inside ourselves and understand the deeper partnerships that connect us all and to take responsibility for our lives and our Earth. Africa is one of our last remaining wild places and the origins of humanity. It is irreplaceable 
Africa is at a crossroads, on the brink of possibilities. We can choose to let its wildlife be lost forever, or we can help save it. In Africa, it is still possible to make a difference. Visit us at www.wildeyes.org to learn how you can make a difference. We only have one Earth. If we don't care, who will? W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. listening to Ellie Weiss and Our Wild World. We want to hear from you. Call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd rather send us an email, please send it to wildeyes at wildeyes.org. That's W-I-L-D-I-Z-E at W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Now, back to Our Wild World. Welcome back. This is Our Wild World and my fabulous, energized guest, Jim Williams, cougar biologist and author of Path of the Puma. So, um, Jim, you're so exciting to talk to your your enthusiasm and your vitality um, after decades of doing this work is just fascinating. So that's part of what we hope to translate and transfer to our listeners is that Conservation does take time. It's not instant gratification and that we have to have that patience and maintain our enthusiasm to have hope. And speaking with you is is, is so fun because it's so obviously still there. Well, thank you. Yes, I think, you know, I always tell my staff and I'm at the part of my career now where I'm trying to make sure that younger biologists get to have the same adventures that I had and, and successes and hopefully fewer failures that I experienced in their careers. And, and one thing I think all of us need to do is never lose that sense of discovery and wonder that we had when we were children. And in wildlife conservation, there's so much discovery yet to be had. It's a real motivator for, for young biologists and, and old alike, frankly. Absolutely. I mean, we've discovered a lot. We know a lot, a lot more because of people like you that, you know, were old school and had to do it the hard way. And we do have two new technologies that make some things easier, but it still requires boots on the ground, uh, interaction, people. And there, as you just said, there is a lot yet to be done. So engaging our listeners who want to, you know, get hands on the wild. It may not be touching animals, but it's going to be an exciting career. So get out there and do it. So um, we were talking a lot about Patagonia, and that brought up to my mind Doug Tompkins and Christine McDivitt. Um, and uh, you're aware of them, and they, they were part of you writing the book, Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so Chris and Doug both, you know, I had the very good fortune of, of being friends with them and, and uh, being a guest of theirs in Patagonia National Park and their staff. And uh, they are world leaders on par, in my mind, with Teddy Roosevelt when he worked with leaders in our country to create these public lands. Chris and Doug have done 
in southern Chile and Argentina, well, in, in some areas in northern Argentina now, too, uh, what we did way back when, when we created the Forest Service and, and set aside public lands, what Doug and Chris done, have done down there is nothing short of amazing with their own money. And uh, it's like you and I taking our 401ks and, and giving it away for conservation and buying land. That's what they've done. And it was actually Doug at the table in his house in the Chacabuco River Valley. Uh, he looked at me and told me that, uh, Jim, he said, uh, when are you going to write some of these stories up? And I said, oh, when I'm, when I'm tired, you know, and I have time. And he looked at me and he said, you are either an activist or you are an inactivist. <laughs> and he kind of shamed me, smiled and laughed. And I thought, my God, and I started talking to Rick Ridgway at Patagonia, a friend of mine, when I got back, and I was I need to write these stories up, but and uh, because you know there's so many great stories to tell, and Rick is the is one of the executives at Patagonia, which is a wonderful family and company out of Ventura, and he uh, connected me with Carl Olson, the director of Patagonia Books, and they're building this incredible new genre of conservation books to go along with the recreation, surfing, climbing, sailing genres, and. Away we went, and five years later, the book was done. It took a while because you know they they had to work with me as a technical scientific biologist to to with good editors to write popular press, and I had to own every word. I had to rewrite things over and over again. But you know what? They were right. They're professionals, and it made it a really quick read because in today's world, you have an iPhone and you have a TV remote. Why should a kid turn a page in a book? Has to read that fast, and they really made it a work of art and made it read quickly, I think. So Doug and Chris Tompkins were very much a part of the book and still, you know, Doug tragically passed away and Chris is still friends. I'm friends today with her and a lot of her team down there. That's fabulous. And for those of our listeners that aren't familiar, um, Doug and Chris, what they did are, is genuinely philanthropic in terms of what Jim just said of Teddy Roosevelt. They used their wealth and rather than just support a, a variety of small conservation projects, they created and purchased a whole lot of land and created an area to become a national park that is an entire ecosystem of conservation. And as Jim just said, um, uh, encourage and uh, with their excitement and their ability a whole lot of conservation efforts and youth and this wonderful crossover Patagonia books to reach a wide variety of audiences and kids need to read books TV and iPhones are not going to do it for us we need to disconnect <laughs> and we need to read and as you said reading um, a good story is is something that you can get away with in your go away with in your imagination and that's what i'm doing when i'm reading your book i i can hear your voice and it's like being there and it's it brings back the days of nancy drew and all of that sort of thing that you could put yourself in somebody else's shoes so once again i definitely recommend reading path of the puma so um from Working with gauchos down in Patagonia and changing that mindset on large landscapes um, to let's go up to our west and cattle ranches that oftentimes abut uh, federal lands, um, cattle grazing. And uh, in your book, you had mentioned, you know, we have a lot of contention about wolves and wolves... um, federal and state protections, wolf hunting, wolf packs, wolf movements, and um, wolf and livestock conflicts. But we don't hear so much about lions in in the same 
uh, landscape. And I think you had said that when lions occupy the same landscape as wolves, the lion is not the apex predator because, as you said earlier, they can be hounded. They will run away from dogs. But when a lion is in the landscape without the wolves, then it becomes sort of the apex mesocarnivore. Yes, and if you think about why would a large 150-pound male mountain lion or 185-pound Patagonia puma run from a little barking hound, well, you think about native wild dogs or canids that were here after the Ice Age or before that had an influence on the evolution of these cats, and that would be wolves, and there's some extinct wild dogs now you know, that perhaps were there, dire wolves, or who knows, There's a lot of conjecture, but clearly wild dogs had an influence on wild cats, right? Right. And that's borne out today in many studies where wolves can and will, a pack, you know, displace a lion off a kill or even kill a cat. Now, every now and again, a big male cat will take a single wolf, but typically the wolves um, have a a pretty significant impact on local cats, uh, you know, how they occupy their their landscape. But in terms of ranching and why wolves are so controversial and bears to some degree, it's because they, they're visible during the day. They walk, Wolves walk down roads and they howl. They make noise. Uh, bears are out in the middle of the day, too. They, you know, they're a little bit more secretive when it comes to black bears, but grizzlies are out in the open. They evolved. They, they lived on the open prairie, you know, years ago. But cats, we don't know they're there. And that is probably the single most significant attribute that has allowed them to to survive and flourish even to this day. Uh, They're very cryptic. They're the ghosts of the forest. They move at night, dawn and dusk, every now and again in the middle of the day. But they typically, just like your house cat, you let your house cat out onto your front yard. It's going to go zip over to your car. Then it's going to zip to a bush. Then it's going to creep and stop. And the big cat's no different. They do the same thing. They just don't walk out in the open typically. Um, And because we don't know they're there, we don't go after them with guns and poison, you know? <laughs> and so that, well, I don't know what that says about us as society or as people is that they're flourishing because we don't know they're there, but that's part of the truth in my mind. Well, I think that might be um, some good news for the cats um, and biologists. Um, I've talked to so many over the past couple months that uh, do track the cats and are able to find them and get collars on them so that we can learn more about them. So, um, We've still got some time here. Um, let's talk about some of your stories, and why don't you tell me what you'd like to talk about, and what, and we'll just come along for the ride. Okay. Okay. Well, I think one of the one of the things that's very controversial, but I, I've never shied away controversy on either side of any fence, because as scientists, we're trained to be objective. And being objective can mean being heartless to some people. I grew up in San Diego, large urban environment. You know, wildlife is in the ocean for the most part. You really don't see it. I lived on the coast, but you know, it's highly developed, so you had to put a mask on or see you know, marine mammal and dive or fish. But I'd see large animals on TV, and, and, and it's like, wow, how could a human ever kill one? And then you flip side, you know, hop over into a rural conservative demographic where people grew up eating elk and eating deer, you know, at a very a ranching lifestyle, a very a rural demographic where, you know, a legally licensed hunting, if some agency in some state says it's okay, they feel like they're doing good. They're contributing, paying, paying money into conservation. So you have this big urban rural divide in values and values is the key thing and in my book I, I emphasize people throughout the entire book because because of those values whether you think lions should be killed if they're causing problems or attack someone 
whether you think they should be legally hunted or not, you think that's appalling or that your dream is to take a legal cat, um, it doesn't really matter in the end because you're fighting over crumbs there. And those are human values that weigh into it. What, where your energy needs to go is into local land trusts that protect landscapes and properties. You know, even Ventura, where Patagonia is located, has the Ventura Land Trust, right? We right. have land trusts here. And then there's big ones like, like Conservation Land Trust in South America or, or Tompkins Conservation buying parks. Or you have Nature Conservancy up here or the Montana Land Reliance. And, you know, these, these trusts for public lands, the Conservation Fund. I, if, if I could do one thing in my career, everyone fights over values and opinions and really deep-seated emotional things. And it's kind of like, do you like the color purple or not? It doesn't mean anything in the end. What means something is keeping homes off the land in valuable critical habitats. And so uh, to take that energy everyone puts into, whether it's animal rights or whatever, put it in the land conservation. And then, you know, three generations from now, you know, people that replace us will have that same argument to have because if we don't protect the land, the animals are going to be gone. That is such an incredibly important point, and I'm so glad you went there because this is what my organization is all about and what this program is about is to get people to think not only about what they're doing today and the wildness we have and our earth that is in peril, but what we can do today and what you just said was so wonderful that three generations from now, we can still have the same arguments because the land mm-hmm. and the wildlife will still be there. That's that's what we need to work on today. Yes, I, I feel very strongly after 30 years in this field. And, and, I, and I also feel that, you know, people have to be a part of that. And governments, federal and state and tribal, have to genuinely work with local communities and, that's a, that's a, and share that decision-making power. You know, traditionally, hunters, and anglers have seats at, of power at the at the individual states where they adopt different hunting regulations. Well, the world's changing. There's a lot of people that, that hunt and mountain bike or mountain bike and don't hunt. And they want to have a say in their local government, whether it's federal or state. And so we have a long ways to go with state governments in this country, although it's still the best system on the planet, I'd argue, because just look at the wildlife. Uh, but we have a long way to go to genuine, genuinely engage people that don't necessarily hunt that want to have a, a voice in that in that arena that care about wildlife. So, right. the there, you know, there's a lot of work to be done. The non-consumptive users, and we've talked about Correct. that a lot with John Landre and who owns the wildlife and the impact yeah. that a certain segment of the population has on our wildlife yeah. management policies. And that, as you just said, that's shifting a lot to non-consumptive use and the wildlife watchers and uh, being able to contribute to the conservation through, oh, either sports gear taxes or, you know, other money to be able to give versus just park fees. Yes. I'd love to see some private companies, you know, lead the way to initiate a tax on their goods similar to what hunters and anglers did because, you know, I, I don't make any bones about it. It's the most successful conservation program on the planet and funded and we do great things, but to cast a broader net and to be more inclusive in the future to everyone who cares, that is critical. And that's where everyone's kind of learning and struggling right now. There is something called recovering America's wildlife act. that's floating around in DC to provide a lot of native non huntable uh, non-hunting and uh, species, uh, you know, reptiles and amphibians and insects. That's a, it's really exciting, but that's still, you know, one step toward being more inclusive to everyone that cares. 
I just heard about that. I mean, I was vaguely aware of it, but someone actually mentioned that to me in, in terms of the acronym, and I said, what is that? So we've got a couple minutes. Can you explain what that is and why it's important? Oh, boy. Yeah, so again, this is going to be, I am not an expert on this, but I do know that it's, it's an act in Congress that all 50 states are in in the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies. W-W-A-F-W-A, W-A-F-W-A. you can Google that, and there's a link on there. But it's a, it's a, fendi- a funding mechanism to go to the states and, and, uh, and to work with partnerships in the non-government world to achieve conservation on these species that haven't uh, recovered and fared so well as deer and elk and even mountain lions, for that matter. There are a lot of species out there that's, that need our help and that are threatened by you know, development and other issues. And this act would provide new monies and funding mechanisms to the states. And it even includes some interpretation and recreation as it pertains to wildlife in it too. So it's the first big funding, new funding mechanism, you know, since the Pittman Robertson act, which, you know, is clearly the deer and elk hunters and uh, that pushed that through. Um, This is the first one, but it's sitting in Congress and, you know, politics be be as they are, uh, who knows when it's going to shake out which session, but hopefully it does. It's a step in the right direction. And then, and each state is working individually with their own population to engage and 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 be more inclusive. So I'm excited about that. You know, having worked a whole career, I've watched a lot of change the last 30 years. So I think things are moving in a good direction. But everyone needs to think about land. That's the one thing that's disappearing every day. And support your local land trust. Excellent. So I'm going to do a little more research on that act and hopefully get some guests to talk about it because um, you've highlighted just how important it is and that every state is involved. So we've got a couple minutes left here. Uh, What's next for you? Well, I think, well, so if you, um, I, uh, Patagonia helped me set up a website called pathofthepuma.com. And if you, if readers read the book and have a comment, I'd love to hear your feedback. You can contact me there. Um, yeah, I'm still, we're working with grizzly bears, wolves, lions, mountain goats, you name it here in Montana. But I'm looking forward to the next phase in my life is probably going to be working more with some international work, you know, uh, and uh, there's a group called Species that's really Really neat. Anthony Giordano is heading that up, doing some fantastic work around the world. Panthera is out there, the wildcat research uh, leading organization on the planet. Um, Wildlife Conservation Society. I'd like to get involved with my colleagues in South America, but who knows? I mean, I'm too busy here. There's a lot of work to be done here, and I got a lot of energy. I have no plans to to not work ever, so uh, I, I just want to keep uh, enjoying the conservation event adventures that I've been so fortunate to enjoy keep that moving forward well, and writing the book was heartwarming to kind of share those stories you know well once again i strongly urge our listeners anyone to read path of the puma and now that you've heard jim and his enthusiasm and in his excitement after so many decades you'll be able to um hear that voice as you read these stories because it is a fabulous and sweeping tale so unfortunately we are out of time today but jim i'd love to talk with you more another time but thank you so much much for your time today. Well, thank you, Ellie. It's, it's been a pleasure. All right. So um, meanwhile, folks, go out and step into your wild world. Thank you again for joining us this week. Be sure to tune in next Monday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of Our Wild World with your host, Ellie Weiss, on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Think about living with wildlife during the coming week and what you can do right now. 